to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Let's just have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll jump open in the Word of God. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you so much for all that you have done for us, that we can be in this place, in this church, at this time in earth's history, and that we can be in a saving relationship with you. Father, I ask and pray that as we study your word today, that you may speak to us, that you may pry open our hearts, that we may hear your voice. Father, may you be with me, may you give me the words to say. And Father, may it not be my words, but may it be your words. May the word of God speak today. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Today's message, just a bit of a disclaimer um, before I start the the sermon today. Today's message um, is in Revelation chapter 13. Now, if you're not acquainted with that chapter, it's quite an intense chapter in Scripture. Good to see you out the front, good and faithful. Um, It's quite an intense chapter. Now, I just want you to understand, and, and you guys no doubt would know this, that the same God who inspired the words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life, is the same God who gives us Revelation 13. It's actually the same author. You know, not just John, but the man who inspired John to write those words was God himself. So as we read this chapter, as we go through this chapter, God's language is quite strong. Why is it quite strong? Well, because it needs to be. Majority of you here today have been parents at some point. I'm about to be a parent. And there is a responsibility that comes with being a parent. It's not just to dot over your child and to love them, but to also point them in the right direction. And that in and of itself is another manifestation of love, isn't it? If you correct your child from going from the wrong way and point it in the right way, then that's a manifestation of love. It's difficult, yes, but it's necessary, absolutely. So I just want to to give this disclaimer, as we study this today, this isn't an attack on people, it's a system that misrepresents God, and there are many systems that misrepresent God in the world today, am I right? But God has spoken, God has said, and we come to, to, to the church today, we open our scriptures with an open mind, understanding that what God has spoken, he wants to reveal to us. Today's message is the final conflict, part one, which means there's a part two. That's next week. I think I'm preaching next week. You'll get that next week. Today's message is looking at the Antichrist. That's what we're up to. Don't be scared. I went to Google yesterday, and as I punched into the Google you know, search box, I said, who is the Antichrist? Do you reckon I had some interesting answers? Apparently, everyone's been, every political leader almost in the past, you know, in the 21st century has been labelled as the Antichrist. I had a, these are a couple of amusing ones that have been, people who have been labelled as the Antichrist over, you know, the past however many years. Top left is, does anyone know that man with his hand raised? Raise your hand if you're the Antichrist. Oh, look, he's raising his hand. People thought that he was the Antichrist, he was the leader of the, the Soviet Union. And it was quite convenient because he had a birthmark on his head and people thought that was the mark of the beast. Dead set. Guy underneath him is Obama. A lot of people thought that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. And here you see a banner that the Antichrist is living in the White House. 
Oh, not anymore. Jump up, you see the United Nations just there with the, the earth. People think that the UN is the Antichrist. Down the bottom here, Nero, he was a Roman emperor. He persecuted the Christians. He was labeled as an Antichrist or as the Antichrist. And the man jogging on a spot, does anyone know who that is? Prince William. Wonder how he would feel being labeled as the Antichrist. And there's a, a number of other people that I could have put up there. You know, another definition is Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the Antichrist. You know, there's been a lot of conjecture on who the Antichrist is. But the majority of people who are trying to label the Antichrist are looking to the news or looking to the current political climate, current world climate, looking for answers instead of looking at the Word of God. You know, when I was younger, my sister subjected me. Whenever it was her turn to watch a movie, she would get Cinderella out. She would put it in the VHS player. And we would have to watch the movie Cinderella. Now, you guys know the story. She leaves the slipper, doesn't she? As the clock strikes 12 or something rather, and the pumpkin carriage turns back into a pumpkin. I can't remember the story. But what I do remember is she leaves the shoe behind. And that's the only thing that doesn't change. It's a bit silly. A bit of a flaw in the plot there. And so the prince is trying to find the lady and he takes it to the home. It would have taken a long time going to every single lady's house. Goes to Cinderella's house and the ugly stepsisters are trying to put the shoe on. And does it fit? No, it doesn't. And a lot of people, when it comes to the Antichrist, it's like the ugly stepsisters trying to shove their foot into the shoe. It's just not going to work. This is what's happening in the world. So we're going to try to make that fit into the Antichrist. But when we come to Scripture and we study the Scripture and we look at what the Scriptures are saying, it gives us a clear definition of what's what. It's interesting there's a lot of confusion even in the Christian world today of what the Antichrist is. A lot of Christians are looking to Israel, they're looking to Jerusalem, and they're expecting the Antichrist to build a temple on Temple Mount. This is Temple Mount just here, the Dome of the Rock is just there. And they're expecting the Antichrist to come to build the temple, to sit in the temple, and to rule for seven years. It's interesting. Sounds cool. A political leader. But the Bible says similar things, but it's not going that far. A lot of eyes are to Israel. A lot of eyes are to Jerusalem. You imagine if something happened to that building just there. Imagine what would happen in the world. You'd have World War III. That building is not going anywhere, and I'm not a prophet, but I just know that there will be a lot of problems. There has not been a temple in Jerusalem since 70 AD. Okay? It's very interesting that Satan has diverted people's attention from the true and the real Antichrist that is present and active today to looking for some future event for seven years where the Antichrist will build his temple in Jerusalem to a place that probably a temple will never be built again. I invite you to turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Because I want to show you something very interesting. While the world, the Christian world, is looking on for the Antichrist to appear as a political leader in the end, the Bible paints a different picture. The Antichrist doesn't come from outside of the Christian church. To the contrary, it comes from inside the Christian church. Did I say Second Peter or did I say Second um, Thessalonians? Okay, that's good. I turned to Peter. I'm just like, I don't know where I'm going here. 
Okay, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. Listen to what Paul says. He says this, Let no one deceive you by any means. Is it easy to be deceived, church? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. What is this day that he's talking of? The second coming. The second coming will not come until the falling away comes first. Is this talking about the falling away of the Berlin Wall? The falling away of Christianity. Paul could even see it in his day. The falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. There are many different names for the Antichrist in scripture. You've got little horn, you've got the man of sin, you've got the son of perdition, you've got Antichrist, you've got lawless one, you've got the harlot, you've got Babylon. All of these names are kind of giving us a picture of what the Antichrist is. And in this text, it calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition. Let me ask you a question. The son of perdition is used one other time in scripture. And do you want to know, does anyone here know who it is used in reference to? Judas. Judas. Isn't that interesting? Was Judas a religious man, yes or no? Was he a part of the disciples? Was he a part of the followers of God? Did he fall away? Did he betray Jesus? The Antichrist falls away. It betrays Jesus. It's from inside the church. It misrepresents God. It actually takes from Jesus and leads people the other direction. It betrays Jesus into the hands of the Romans. Look at this. This is Jesus praying for his disciples. Look what he says. He says, those whom you gave me I have kept and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. Judas is the son of perdition. This tells me something very interesting, church that the Antichrist comes from inside the church, not outside the church. And isn't it interesting that a lot of people are looking to political leaders, they're looking to corporations, and the list goes on, waiting for the Antichrist when the Bible tells that he comes from inside the church. And look at what he does. Look at what he does here in verse four. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So he reigns as a king on earth. It's a system, but there's a man at the head of the system very clearly. And I think you need to understand the word anti, it doesn't just mean opposed to or against, it can also mean in the place of. Have a look at this on the screen just here if you can see it. This, this screen's better than the other screen. How Antichrist desires to take the ministry of Jesus, to reflect it, to take the place of it. Jesus began his ministry in water, he was baptized, and from his baptism, he went out and he taught, he preached, and he saved the world. The Antichrist in Revelation 13, which we will read soon, begins his ministry from the sea, from the water. Jesus said that he was one with the Father. I and my Father are one. The Antichrist is one with the dragon. And who is the dragon? Satan. Jesus receives his authority from the Father. The Antichrist receives his authority from the dragon. Jesus ministers from three and a half years, from the beginning of his baptism to his crucifixion. The Antichrist rules for 1,260 days, which is three and a half prophetic times. Isn't that interesting? 
Jesus receives a mortal wound as he hung on the cross, dying for the salvation of the world. He received a mortal death wound. The Antichrist in Revelation 13 receives a deadly wound as well. Jesus came back to life on the third day. The Antichrist comes back to life. The deadly wound is healed. And he is worshipped, Jesus, as he ascends from the grave, he is worshipped. That's why we're here today. But the Antichrist, after his deadly wound has been healed, he receives universal global worship. Isn't that interesting? Antichrist doesn't mean just against, but it means in the place of. And the Antichrist has a ministry on earth. Now, I want to ask you a question. This is a personal question, and I want your response here. It's very easy for us to externally look at the ministry of Antichrist and say, oh, that's terrible. But how often do you manifest the spirit of Antichrist when you put yourself in the place of Christ or put yourself in the place of God? I do it whenever I possess an independent spirit, a self-sufficient spirit, where I think that through my efforts, through my works, through the resume that I give God, that I somehow earn favor from him. So much of the time when we think that we know it all, when we think that we're going good, when we think that we're right in our own strength, we are possessing the very same spirit of Antichrist, putting ourselves in the place of Jesus. Jesus should be where he should be. We should step aside and he should take the foreground. We take the background. Okay? So we can even possess the spirit of Antichrist in our own lives and in our own hearts. What I want to do today, now oh, the shoe fits, there you go, that's the picture I was talking about before, if you've seen them, the, the Cinderella movie there. They had big feet, the stepsisters. There's four points that I want to have a look at today that identify who the Antichrist is in Revelation chapter 13. The first one is it's political in nature, it's universal, it's religious, so it's a religio-political power, it's both, it wears both hats. And it has the correct timing when it rises to prominence and when it falls. And the shoe does fit. And I could probably give you a whole lot of other proofs today, but I don't have time to do so. So we're just going to keep it to four. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. We're going to uncover these things just here. For some of you, this may be new stuff. For others, it may be revision. The disclaimer that I'm going to make to you right now is... Remember what I said, it's not an attack on individuals, but rather it's a system that misrepresents God. The Antichrist, according to scripture and according to Protestant belief, you look at people like Martin Luther, you look at people like Savranola, you look at people like Wycliffe, Tyndale, Huss, Jerome, Calvin, and the list goes on. They identified the Antichrist as the church of their day being the Roman Catholic Church. It's not an attack on individuals. It's a system that misrepresents God. I know a lot of Catholic people that are lovely, wonderful people who will be in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Amen. However, it's a system that misrepresents God. It's a falling away. And we're going to have a look at that today. I think sometimes we can try and be politically correct. And when I preach this sermon, I don't want it to come across as if it is arrogant because it's not. We're just looking at what the scriptures say. So in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, let's read these first two verses. 
Then I saw, or then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and the mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. In Bible prophecy, church, what is a symbolic representation of a beast? It's a kingdom. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 17, it says the beasts which you saw were kingdoms. So this beast that is rising up out of the sea is a kingdom. It's a political entity. Isn't it interesting that this is a conglomerate beast made of many different animals? What's the first animal that you see in verse 2? What was it? It's the leopard. It goes from the leopard to the, what kind of feet does it have? Feet of the bear, and it has the mouth of a lion. So it goes leopard, bear, lion. Interesting. Where is that coming from? Where is that direct language coming from? It's coming from Daniel chapter 7. However, there's a difference. Daniel, who is living in the time of Babylon, represented by the lion, is looking forward through the annals of history, and he sees Babylon, the lion, Medo-Persia, the bear, Greece, the leopard, and the terrible nondescript beast being Rome. He's looking forward, and he's seen the progressions. This will fall, this will come, this will fall, this will come, all the way down to when Antichrist comes and then the end of the world. John is a couple of steps in the future, and he's looking back at history. Greece has come. You got the heads. Or you got the, the shape of a, a, a leopard. Feet of the bear, Persia has come, and the mouth of a lion. Isn't, isn't the Bible just so amazing? It's like a hand in a glove. It just fits. So while Daniel is looking forward, John is looking back. He's in the time of Rome. And that which comes from Rome isn't another world superpower that conquers and divides, but rather it's a religio-political entity that comes up from Rome. It's different. And it reigns as this power until the coming of Christ. Now, in verse 7 of the text, Revelation 13, verse 7, it says this, It was granted to him to make war with the saints. This is God's people to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. During the dark ages of church history, has there been persecution against God's people? Let me be fair. Has the persecution gone both ways? It has gone both ways. Protestants have persecuted. Catholics have persecuted each other. However, the largest extent of the persecution has come from the more powerful entity, which was the Catholic Church. This is a statement. Um, it says, It is estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 millions of the human family have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by popish persecutors. An average of more than 40,000 religious murders for every year of the existence of popery during this period of time. I mean, there's no question. And what you actually find today is a lot of the history is being pushed aside or being rewritten. It's true. 
It's true because this is what you actually find when you read actually old military accounts like Alexander the Great versus Darius. You actually find that the, the victors actually write the historical accounts. And so Alexander the Great says, you know, that the Persians, when he went to conquer them, they had like 2 million people and we had 50,000 and we beat them. He's trying to puff himself up a little bit. So the person who wins usually writes the historical accounts. The historical accounts have been written, they've been kept, but they're being changed. A lot of it is being changed. You dig deep and you dig deeper and you dig deeper and you actually find this stuff. It's really interesting what's happening. So the power is the political entity, but it's not just a political entity, it's also a universal entity. This is in Rio de Janeiro in 2013, it's World Youth Day, and there, that's Copacabana Beach. What colour um, sand does Copacabana Beach have? Has white sand. That's not the colour of the sand, that's people. This is World Youth Day, 2013. When the Pope came to town, there were three million people. Three million people who flooded onto the beach here to participate in mass. Interesting, eh? This is when he, this is World Youth Day from the very beginning in 1987. In Argentina, there was almost a million. You even have Australia here, a secular country, 350,000 people come out to meet the man. And then all the way down here to Brazil. When it went to the Philippines, there was 4 million people there for World Youth Day. And that was when Pope John Paul II was around in 1995. So interesting that there's this adoration, there's this reverence, you know, for this religio-political entity. When he went to the Philippines in 2015, there were six million people. I mean, can I ask you a question? When Donald Trump goes somewhere, do six million people come out and say hello to him? What about Malcolm Turnbull? If Malcolm Turnbull turned up to Sydney, do you think that you would book a a plane ticket, fly to Sydney to see him? Who cares? I mean, you think about another religious person in the world. Let's just, Doug Batchelor, for example. If Doug Batchelor came to Australia, do you think six million people would turn out to listen to him? Maybe. <laughs> Probably not. Definitely not. Here is a man that commands such respect and reverence around the world that six million people will come and listen to him. And 350,000 in Australia, a secular nation. It's a universal entity, which is interesting. And the word Catholic itself means universal, the worldwide. Point number four is it's religious. Um, let's have a look at these scriptures. Actually, I want to go back to universal because I didn't read those scriptures. Um, Revelation chapter 13, verses 4 to 5. It says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. How much of the world? All the world. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? They follow him with the intention of what? Worshipping him. The second point that we have is that this power is religious. It's not just political, but it's also religious. We see this here in verses 5 and 6. Look at this. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. 
and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Now, I just want to take you back to the picture of the beast, the conglomerate picture of the beast. You've got the leopard, you've got the bear, you've got the lion. What part of the, the, body's, the animal's body is the lion represented by? Just draw, put the dots together here. Who represented the lion in Daniel's vision? Babylon. What does the mouth do? Speaks. When this beast, when the Antichrist speaks, he speaks as Babylon. And you see this all throughout Revelation. He speaks as Babylon. He speaks as one who blasphemes. Well, what is blasphemy according to Scripture? Jesus was accused of blasphemy a number of times. One of the instances here you see in Luke chapter 5 and verse 21, when the lame man is lowered down through the roof, Jesus doesn't say you are healed. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. If I made an altar call today and said, come down and I will forgive your sins, is that right or wrong? If I said, come down the, the front today because there is one mediator between God and man and that's Jesus Christ the righteous and he will forgive your sins, is that right or wrong? That is right. Jesus was accused of blasphemy because he claimed the power to forgive sins. And this would have, Jesus was a radical, you know. He was God, but he was man. And this would have been a hard pill for them to swallow. But it was true in what he was saying. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Look at this from the dignities and duties of the priest. God himself, this is a Catholic document, Priests read, God himself is obliged to abide by the judgments of his priests. And either not to pardon or to pardon, according as they refuse or give absolution. This is one of many. Doesn't that make sense? Confessional? You go and you confess your sins to a man or to a priest. This is what Jesus was accused of, but Jesus had the power to because he was the son of God. He was the savior of humanity. He is the one and only mediator church. He is your one and only mediator. You can't save yourself, and no one else can. It's Christ. You have the power to hold on to Jesus. You have the power to let go of Jesus. It is your choice. But at the end of the day, your choice means nothing at the end of the day in terms of your salvation. It doesn't add to it, doesn't subtract to it. It just allows it. There is one mediator between God and man. It's Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus had the power to forgive sins. No other man does. Jesus was accused of blasphemy in another time when he was talking to the religious leaders. They wanted to stone him. And says, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And you being a man, do what? Make yourself God. This is by um, Pope Pius Oh, 100 or so years ago, this is what he's talking about when he's talking about you know, the Pope and his position. The Pope is not simply the representative of Jesus Christ. We're all representatives of Jesus Christ, amen? We're Christians. On the contrary, he is Jesus Christ himself. Under the veil of the flesh, does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who is speaking. Does he teach? It is Jesus Christ who teaches. And you can have statement after statement after statement after statement that reveals and conveys 
this kind of picture. And I don't want to be critical. I'm not saying this in an arrogant way. We're just unpacking what this blasphemy is according to the scriptures. Um, Another thing that it says in verse 6, it says he will blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Isn't it interesting that he will blaspheme his tabernacle or his temple? And I always wonder, well, what is that talking about? There is no temple on earth, no physical temple apart from our bodies that is on earth that he can blaspheme because the temple has been destroyed. There is one temple and Jesus ministers our high priest in that temple in the heavenly realms. So what does it mean when he blasphemes his temple? What it means is he casts it down to the ground. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 8. He casts the temple, the sanctuary, down to the ground. He replicates the temple services in the Old Testament in the New Covenant dispensation. In other words, you go to this physical building, you confess your sins, much like you're confessing your sins onto a sacrificial animal. Instead of the Old Testament priest, you have New Testament priests. Instead of the Old Testament high priest, you now have the Pope, who is the high priest on earth. Instead of Jesus' sacrifice and the sacrifice of the lambs in the sanctuary where they would be burnt as a symbol of what Jesus' death would be, you have Mass. Mass is different to the communion that we practice in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Did you know that? Entirely different. There's a thing called transubstantiation, which means when the priest blesses the bread and the wine, it literally, not symbolically, it literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. And what they believe is they have the power to create the creator and they are enacting the sacrificial service time after time after time after time. They're blaspheming the temple and the ministry of Christ and what he has done. Are they doing it in ignorance? Mostly I would say yes. There will be many who will be saved in this system, but Jesus still calls them out as he does for us. What does he call our church? It's not the triumphant church. It's the lukewarm church. Church, we can't listen to this message today and think that we have it together because we don't. We can't listen to this message today and think that we are in a better position because I want to tell you something. Lukewarm is actually a worse condition than apostasy because it's indifferent to the things of God. I believe that Catholics make the best Seventh-day Adventists. And in verse 18, this is what it says. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, a man, a man at the head of the system. And what's this number? 666. It's not a barcode tattooed on your forehead. It's not Gorbachev's birthmark on his forehead. It's the number of a man. You know, the, the name Vicar of the Son of God in, um, in Latin is Vicarius Filii Dei. And you take the Roman numerals for that, A equals 666. Dux Clary, uh, Wycliffe and the Lollards, you know, the morning star of the Reformation when he was out sharing the truths about God's word and who the Antichrist was. This is what the the Pope signs when he signs official document. It's Dux Clary. It equals to 666 as well. And there's 
many other ones. There's ones in Greek that you can use. There's ones in Hebrews for different titles, different names that he uses. I mean, if this was the only thing that you were basing your understanding of Antichrist on, then it wouldn't be that solid. But if it's a part of the whole package, it complements it, and the shoe is starting to fit very nicely. The next one is its timing. In Revelation chapter 13 and verse 5, we read this verse before, but we read it again. It says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for how many months? 42 months. On the screen, you'll see a little time, um, a time graph just here, time chart. 42 months is 1,260 days. And a day in Bible prophecy represents a year. We've looked at this time prophecy a number of times, but it's always good to revise, isn't it? So we find that this religious and political entity rules for a period of time of 1,260 years. That tells me something very interesting. It can't be Barack Obama because he's going to live a normal mortal life and then he'll die. It has to be for an extended period of time. Therefore, it has to be a system which has successes. The emperor of the, the Roman Empire, the Caesar, his name was Justinian. And as the western portion of his empire was crumbling, he decided to take the very seat of his kingdom from Rome, where all the Caesars had had up to that point, and move it to Constantinople in the east. You guys heard of that history before? And as he moves it to the east, and as he makes his, the, the headquarters for his kingdom in the east, guess who he gives control to the western part of his empire? Who does he hand, it in, hand the, the control into? The Pope's hand. And this is actually a mosaic of this very thing, Justinian's decree, his donation. And he declared the bishop, the pope, to be the bishop of the world and the corrector of heretics. So here you have, for the first time in the, the Western Empire, you actually find a religious entity of the Christian church reigning over this portion of the empire. Church and state, should they be together? You have a lot of problems. God has not called us to establish a theocracy. That was the Old Testament dispensation with the Jews. God was the head and they had spiritual leaders and prophets. This isn't now. And what happened? So you take 538 AD, you add this 1,260 years, it takes you to 1798 when Napoleon's armies, the French armies, converged on Rome the armies went into the Vatican City and Berthier, Napoleon's general, took the Pope off his chair, put him in, took him into exile, declared a republic and said, okay, the political license that you now have is taken from you. Do you know what everyone was thinking as they were watching that and what transpired after that? They thought that the power that had dominated Western Europe for over a thousand years had come to nothing. It was finished and it would never rise from the ashes again. Look one of them says, as a rake has delivered its funeral oration with a joyous and blasphemous irony, it has ceased to exist. It well seems as if everything were finished. If only it was. I'm going to show you a couple of pictures on the screen just here. The Bible says, actually, that's just a bit of a prelude of what's to come. In Revelation chapter 13, and we're going to finish on this verse just here, verse 3. The Bible says this, 
and I saw one of his heads as though it had been mortally wounded. That happened in 1798, when Napoleon's armies went into Rome, took the Pope off his throne, put him into captivity, declared a republic, took away his political license. 1798. But the Bible says in verse 3, prophetically, church, that it will get it back. It says, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Have a look at what's even happening in the world of the celebrities. Russell Crowe, look, I'm not a Catholic. I've never felt any connection with any previous pope, but I like this guy. He's changing the tone of the way you regard the pope, and I think it's a magnificent thing. Chris Rock, he's comedian. Some of the young people know who these, these people are. I might be crazy, but I got this weird feeling that the new pope might be the greatest man alive. This new pope is like the Floyd Mayweather of popes. Jim Carrey, I'm not religious, Pope Francis, but I like the cut of your jib, whatever that means. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel, who's a late-night TV host in America, is like, more like Pope Frantastic. This dude's an atheist. Look what he says. And he actually challenges Christians on his, on his TV show. I'm not a Catholic, I'm an atheist, but I like the Pope more, better than what you do. The UN had a general meeting a couple of years ago the UN is where all the, the most powerful political leaders from around the world, representatives from all the different countries around the world, they come together and they discuss political issues in the world. For the first time in the history of the UN, the Pope addressed them. And look at what the secretary, the general secretary of the UN says as he was about to come up and to speak. He's not, a, he's not a Catholic, he's not a Christian. He says this, we are honored to host you during this historic visit. For those of us who cherish the United Nations, this chamber is sacred space. It's like a church, that's what they're saying. Never in our 70-year history has the United Nations been honored to welcome a pope for the opening of the General Assembly. Your holiness, thank you for making history. Thank you for demonstrating yet again your remarkable global stature as a man of faith for all faiths. Your views move millions. Your teachings bring action. Your example inspires us all. Get ready for this next one. Across the global agenda, His Holiness is a resounding voice of conscience. Your Holiness, welcome to the pulpit of the world. We are here to listen. It is not a time to be complacent, church. It is not a time to give up. It is not a time to lose heart. Our redemption draws near. We are homeward bound. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your instruction. We thank you for your timely message. Even though it was written almost 2,000 years ago, it is still timely for us today. We know what's about to happen next. We can see it, Lord. Forgive us for our indifference. Forgive us for our lackluster heart. Forgive us, Father, for being so distracted on other things. That time spent with you is a low priority. Father, may you change us, but may we be willing to be made willing. May we hear your voice. May we trust in the promise of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. 
And Father, may we never think that we are better than anyone else because the reality of your word tells us otherwise. May we be hot for you, for Jesus' sake. May your blessing rest upon us this day. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3ABN Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support.
There is coming a day when no heartache shall come. No more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there. And forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day, glorious day, that will be. You have just listened to What a Day That Will Be with the Sharon Bethel Quartet. Before that, we had Hildegard Christian playing Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. And coming up next, we have Malita Fong, I Have a Friend.
Thank you, Sandra Enterman, for that beautiful song, Come Thou Found, Come Thou King. Before that, we listen to Alan Jackson, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.